the UN has become more and more infiltrated by this um, great reset idea. When I started working there, it wasn't as apparent. Things were very different. And over the years, it's just been hijacked really in a way, you know, hijacked in a way. Hello, and welcome to Make Language Great Again. Today, it is my great joy to welcome Mary Otto, who is doing something amazingly brave. So, first of all, do you mind telling in your words a little bit about yourself and what you're doing? Sure, thank you. Yes, um, well, I am, I'm right now I'm undertaking a, a communication campaign to uh, preserve and protect the rights of Canadians. This is also important for people around the world, and I would encourage um, all citizens to be interested in this. But um, my um, background, I'm a Canadian citizen and a, a citizen of Jamaica and a permanent resident of Panama. And um, I worked in the UN for about 18 years throughout a period of three decades from 86 to 2015 or so. And um, I am greatly concerned about what is called the Great Reset for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And I have been studying this for at least one year. And um, those uh, concerns bring me to take action. That is quite amazing. You know, when I, when I heard your story, or when I read your story rather, I was so moved and so impressed because I think it is so important for people to realize that even probably the majority of employees of the United Nations or even the World Economic Forum, they have no idea. Or maybe they're starting to get an idea now, but they are human beings and they need to know what's happening and they need to really be talked to as human beings, which is what you are doing. So, uh, first of all, when you were working at the United Nations, what were you doing? I mean, you don't have to tell me secrets, but, you know. Oh, no, no. Um, it's actually... The work in the UN is actually um, not very exciting in many ways. I mean, in many ways, it's wonderful and, and rich. Um, at the same time, we work mainly with policy and it's very dry sometimes. But I did a number of things. I have a master's degree in environmental studies. And um, I actually started out looking at uh, water supply and sanitation um, in poor countries. But then I got interested in the technical side of development, and I have worked as a project designer, a program designer, a, a planner, a strategic planner, um, and other, other things related to that, a writer. Um, I did a lot of writing. Um, so, so I pretty much worked in, in um, it's really kind of a mechanical side of the United Nations because all our work is done through projects. And so these projects have different structures and frameworks and so on. And um, so I, I pretty much worked in that world. And I, in technic, in terms of um, the subject areas, I worked in climate change, climate change adaptation, disaster risk reduction, environmental planning, macro planning, basically. Your heart was in a good place and you thought that you were doing exactly the right thing for the world, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, you know, and... Even in my time in the UN, I saw and felt changes throughout the decades. And now that I learned a lot more about what has happened in that time period, things make sense. Um, so I would say today that 99% of employees in governments, in the United Nations, in the Bretton Woods organizations, 
and even maybe 80% or 95% that work within the World Economic Forum themselves, they, I don't think they have delved in deeply or I'm not sure what's going on, but to me, it didn't take much to see that things were very off. I mean, the um, promotional videos directly from the World Economic Forum are shocking. Oh, to say the least. So this is actually very interesting because I was involved in working with some environmental organizations on the news side and on the nonprofit side. And I know that people actually do mean well. And I think now many are waking up, but especially a few years ago, because when you say, let's save the planet, I mean, who in their right mind would not agree with that? Like people have a good feeling and they think they're doing the right thing. And it is so important to find the right language to talk to them and to educate people in a way that is not, that is not making them the enemy because they don't feel of themselves as the enemy. What, what do you think about that? Yes, 100%. And, and the piece you wrote very recently about that unity um, is so, so important. And it is one step ahead. I have to catch myself often with great frustration. Um, you know, it, to me, it's very frustrating. Not that people, I don't want anyone to believe me directly. I just want people to look, just to look and read for themselves. And when people will not do that, I, that makes me very frustrated. And then it's easy to get, you know, testy and angry, but um, that's not the way. Um, I am now, that is why, one reason why the campaign I do only looks at direct evidence and primary resources of information. I personally listen to many anecdotal things. I like a wide background, but I want to show that, I want to show the evidence from the, the, the real sources, you know, the real URLs, direct, real documents, just to start with that. That is so much. And if people would just look towards that, because if one looks at evidence from the direct sources, primary resources, immediately the theory must be taken away from conspiracy because one sees the evidence of conspiracy and there's no doubting it because the facts are the facts. And from a acquaintance of mine, Chris, he always says, you know, the facts are the facts. And if people have problems with the facts, the problem does not lie within the facts. And that's true. That, that is so true. And I agree with you completely. And I struggle with the need to feel frustrated with the natural impulse to be frustrated, obviously, every day. Because once you do certain research for a while, and then you see how things connect very clearly, then it's like, God, what is so hard to see? I mean, like, come on. But then you realize that I too was a person who did not see that at some point. And maybe that phase in life ended a, a little bit earlier for me. But still, I was a person at some point where I had no idea and I had idealistic notions about all those things. Can you, I mean, what can you say about your campaign and what you're doing? What do you want people to know? Oh, okay. Um, well, I can provide links um, for the, the address of the campaign, etc., and I can provide, provide the briefing document for anyone to look at. It's four pages. I can provide that. But basically, this campaign does um, pretty much three things. Makes people aware. This, and I'm dealing with Canada because I mm -hmm. have a 
or somewhere. And I am. And when you say, I'm sorry, when you say people, people are, like, who are you targeting for your campaign? Anyone in Canada who is a Canadian or anyone in the world who wants Canada to be strong and free. That's it. Any, everybody, everybody. Um, so, but in terms of the subject area, I'm looking at what rights Canadians have in the constitutions of Canada and the other um, documents and, and, and um, treaties and international protocols, et cetera, where Canada is a signature. So what rights do Canadians have? What conventions and treaties has Canada signed in terms of peace and human rights um, and freedom of speech in the United Nations or otherwise? And um, so what is, what is the situation? What is the context in terms of their rights? And then also helping them stand up for their rights. Um, so knowing the rights, standing up for the rights, um, linking them to information and other people, you know, a net, an information hub. And also, and I think this is very important, and that is that for the people working in government, whether it be police, the medical field, uh, the health field, education, security, any logistics, for the people there who are working in the government or the UN who are aware of the great dangers of this fourth industrial revolution, how do they feel? Do they feel lost? Who can they talk to? You know, they're in a tough spot right now, and there are many of them. And perhaps they have a choice between quitting their job or feeding their family. So that's a really tough spot to be in. Um, so that's a, I'm start trying to do something for them. I don't even know what that will look like yet, but let's see what happens if people contact me about that issue also. Oh, that, is, that is so amazing. And so from what I understand, you actually are trying to reach out to people, say, in the United Nations, to regular employees and to educate them and to inform them about the Great Reset and what's happening in a very proper, respectable way that is sourced. Is it, is it correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. That would, that would be, yes, true. Now, that is, that is amazing. I am I'm in awe of this kind of work that you're doing. I think it is so, so important for, for the world, really. So what was your journey? What made you, how did you come to this place where you are right now? Oh, well, I think the, the main thing would have been curiosity, you know, asking questions. When I worked in the UN, there were funny things sometimes, subtle, vague, some other things too that were sort of petty thievery, nothing important. But, you know, I noticed some, it was a funny place. It's a strange place to work. It really is with its own culture and then so many levels and kind of mysteries. Um, so, you know, but um, I, I was always, I won't say skeptical. I wanted to work in the United Nations since I was 10 years old and I started in my 20, late 20s and continued. I was very devoted. Um, but I did see that creativity was not so well absorbed in the system. Um, it's very hierarchical. There is a need for that. At the same time, it does kind of maintain a, a type of, of individual who, who prefers to not ruffle feathers and, and go by the directions and, you know, not say too much, perhaps. So it's, it's a very conservative place to work. In many ways, that was good, but that also fails too. So um, 
I went in and out of the UN. I didn't stay there for like years and years in a row, four years off, three years off, five years, that kind of thing. So I continued to have breaks. And I think because I continued to have breaks and do different things in my life, I then saw different opportunities, I mean, um, perspectives, and that made me think again. And I have been very skeptical for, for um, since I was 30. I was very skeptical of the medical industry because I, I was misdiagnosed as diabetic, as a diabetic and so on. And I had a scare that way. So I started reading. So I've been very alternative thinking since I was about 30 years old, I'd say. So that has all you know, given me a perspective. When I retired from the UN, um, my last contract, I worked voluntarily then. And I worked and I'm in... Sorry, when did you, when did you retire? Um, 2015. Okay. So I started to work in something that I was interested in because I worked with UNICEF, although I was a planner in UNICEF. But it was the subjects that UNICEF deals with. So I got really interested in child protection. And then I got really interested in child trafficking. So I researched child trafficking for about five years. Wow. And And uh, go ahead. No, and I, um, I found some really important evidence on my own. And I took it to a private detective and everything. You helped save children. I, I don't know, but I found some evidence that no one... As far as the circles, you know, mm-hmm. the investigator said that he was, people were on to that theme, but I found evidence of it. Oh. So I, oh. I kept it in my laptop. And oh, that is some dangerous waters too. So, oh, yes, 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 um, yes, it was, you know, but um, I'm just smiling about it now because like, you know, it's it's hard to believe that all of a sudden one day you can find yourself meeting a detective at some named restaurant and only, you know, I only knew where I was going an hour before I got there. It was like a movie, but that stuff's out there. I mean, it's it's from what I believe now to what I believe six years ago before I started this investigative journey is just really from like night and day. But going back to what you said, you know, you're absolutely right with when people are working full time, being parents, it's it's difficult to have all the time also to to investigate things to any depth, and um, therefore, you know, met, most people they have never been exposed to the information. I think that is fascinating. So I think the echo chamber, the echo chamber, it plays a big role because if all you hear is certain clean information that is easy to digest, and that explains the world in terms that make it clean, that you understand what's happening and maybe there's some issues, but generally speaking, people mean, well, nobody's trying to do anything bad to you and things like that are a lot easier to accept. And our brain is very interesting in that sense. It actually, it likes stories like this. And if that's all you hear, I can completely understand how somebody working a respectable job they just don't want to go down the rabbit hole because then they're alone and it's, it's highly unpleasant. But then on the other hand, if somebody is trying to do something bad to you and if you snooze on it, then sooner or later you're going to face it regardless of whether you avoided it or not, which is why it's important well, to deal with it. Well, absolutely. And, and I was thinking the other day that, you know, the way I think is different because as a, you know, I've been working in various forms of results-based management, strategic planning. 
mm-hmm. actualizing mm-hmm. goals. You know, the whole thing is about actualizing goals. So I've been working for 30 years with all in helping to invent new processes for this kind of stuff. Risk, risk assessments, risk management. That is all, I take that for granted because I have developed that way of thinking for my job. But, you know, the first, the very first thing about doing any of those things, assessing risk, planning for your future, advising anyone in your family or whatever, the very first thing and the only thing that matters is an absolute deep and wide understanding of the context. If you don't have that, nothing else works. It will fail. So because of that, I am these days working very hard to understand the context because everything rolls off from that. Well, what is the reaction that you're getting when you're reaching people, reaching out to people in the United Nations or anywhere? What kind of reaction are you getting? Absolute zero. Well, so nobody writes back? No, they investigate me in LinkedIn. Oh. (laughs) I see them searching in LinkedIn sometimes. There's nothing much in LinkedIn, but... So, but you keep doing it because they hope that eventually they will hear or something will, or, or you think they're scared or... or no, well, in, in, in all honesty, um, I have not sent out my campaign to dozens of people, maybe 20 people so far. And I was doing, um, you know, I was testing the waters and then I was really looking at the document. Some people were saying, suggesting changes in the document. So I was thinking of reworking it or making different versions of it, maybe in different languages as well. So I was, I was really just testing it, sending it to some people and a few, I sent it to some people in the UN, maybe five or maybe 10, maybe 20 people in governments, um, UK, Canada. And um, yes, so there's, there's one politician in Canada who corresponds with me a little bit, um, who's on this same page. And I wouldn't say his name now because I right. wouldn't know him. But there are a couple of politicians in Canada, but not too many. And I see one, you know, a few down in Australia, a few in England, who are a few in Italy, a few in many countries. And then, of course, the pre- president, um, was it Tanzania, who, was a, who, was, who died oh, nice. today? So, I mean, I think, I think you're right. I think that when you're saying a lot more people know, a lot more people know, or a lot of people are suspicious, a lot. A lot of people have a good understanding, maybe like you and I do, whatever. But for various reasons, they're not admitting it or really recognizing it, or they're scared to admit it, or they're not prepared to quit their job for it or isolate their family and so on. I mean, this journey, as I'm sure you know, comes, it's an arduous journey, you know, to walk this path because it, you know, it's, it's just difficult when your friends and family and loved ones see things really differently than you do. Oh, that is good. What is, what is your journey in that regard? Did you gain friends? Did you lose friends? How, how is it working out so far? Oh, I'd say lo- lose very much in the red, although I've met new friends too. Um, uh, so I've gotten in touch with several really great new friends and um, groups. Um, but, uh, you know, people don't want to hear my doom merchant stories. <laughs> they just don't. 
Well, people want to believe that it's all fine. We are just in the middle of the pandemic and everything is just a health response and we need it for public health and everything is going to be fine. So that is the majority of people in your circle? Yeah, yes, yes, I would say so. Although um, some members of my immediate family, thank goodness, are are very much with um, with with being, you know, oh, very aware and perhaps not to the extent I am, but are certainly not doubting something's very, very wrong. So my immediate connections are solid, um, thank goodness, but many a little bit further, you know, away are not. And um, yes, I think that um, it's, first of all, you know, you have presented um, some art for many years and you're an artist, an alternative thinker. And so, and I was in the child trafficking investigation with really deep in there. So actually the Great Reset is, is less horrible than the stuff I was investigating, but a lot more scary because it's, they're trying to control the world. So. Well, it is, the approach is not new. The approach has been out there for centuries. It's just that the scale of technology they're trying to use to utilize it, to make it happen. Yes, I, I, um, whenever I don't, I have not looked at the history of everything yet. It's, it's about 200 layers thick. You know, when someone says, well, what do you mean? There's this group, this, it's so, it is very complicated because it is, as you say, hundreds of years old, so dimensional, perhaps in dimensions that we do not see and understand also, whatever that may be. So, you know, it is. Yes, it's just so, so huge that for an, a person living a, quote, you know, normal life, it's, it's too fantastic because it's, it's more fantastic than many of the science fiction movies. Far more fantastic, really. Well, the real, yeah, real life is usually much wilder than what we believe or what we want to accept. There's lots of things happening at all times and... Yes. And then, you know, for me, um, I had to, as I said, I was always, I was never really solid in the UN career, promoted all the time for many years. I was in and out, in and out. All right. And I was always alternatively minded. So I had a skeptical eye going. But for the people who devote their whole lives to these things, and then to find out they have helped build this thing, as well as that all the dreams weren't true, so their life is wasted in order to preserve their nobility. They have to quit their job and give up their pensions and their kids won't go to school anymore and they won't have health insurance anymore. It's, it's way too much. Really. The machine builds a trap. The machine is very good at building a trap. Oh, yes. And when, I mean, before when I saw certain names of very prestigious institutions, I would think, oh, wow, that person is a whatever scholar. Now they're like code words. When I see them, I think, okay, I know that's part of that. So you know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. they, you're, you're trained into believing that it's wonderful to go to this prestigious thing, work, work for that prestigious thing. This, these people are gods or, well, philanthropists, whatever, the mentors of society, and you are part of building a better world. And yeah, so they're tra they trap you with your own ego to start with. They trap you with your pocketbook um, and not also too, after you work in government or in the UN for 15 years and you're 51, 
well, you might not be able just to go and transfer into another job so easily, you know? Um, so they trap you with your job and then, yeah. And also the paradigm, the way you see the world, your colleagues, so many things. It's a big, big trap. But they set many traps for us in many ways. I'm starting to learn. That is so true. I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying. You're putting it with such clarity. I think it's important for people to know that. And I have been running away from the trap ever since I graduated college because I originally planned to be in the academia in Tibetan studies and I saw something stifling, but I just couldn't. It was too, I saw the stale element. It was too stinky to my senses. So I had to run. And then I did try in earnest, I tried the corporate route for, for a couple of years where I thought, okay, enough of weird me, enough of weird artists. It's too, too inconvenient. Like I'm a weirdo all the time. Why don't I try this corporate thing? And I loved it. I mean, like, I really embraced it. Of course, it didn't work out because it wasn't me and I was miserable. So, but I can completely understand how people with maybe less inclination to take risks, they would feel like they can take a little bit more of this trap and a little bit more of this trap and then 10 years down the road, they forgot everything else. Yes, yes. And um, that's, that's absolutely true. It's, you know, you lose your contacts, you get nervous. Many of the people in the UN, for example, are, are maybe trained in law, but may have not really practiced it for so long. And then they're in another country. How do they practical back into that field? So, you know, it's, it is difficult. Also, the, um, what people might think is that um, people in the UN don't have to work too hard. That's not true. They keep this nowadays, now that they have the power of the corporate partnerships, might be different. Okay. But the salaries are very good. The allowances and benefits are extremely good. Very, very good. But they keep the staff really trim. And, you know, I think it's really more so to keep everyone really busy, which is good, really, than to have everyone flobbing around and off the, off the gravy train. National governments, I think, federal national governments can get away with working in certain positions, don't have that kind of culture. I think local governments work hard, city governments, I think they work hard. Um, provincial, I think pretty much too, but, but the people, so it's not like a free ride in any way. You work hard, you have a lot to do. You're kept very busy, but it's more, it's very military, really. It's designed from the British administration, my understanding, or perhaps the French, but it's designed under British military, it's a military structure, very hierarchical, even the titles. Perhaps not today, but they have been, you know, chief, division chief, officer, that kind of thing. So it's, um, and you do not say no to your boss. You don't ever. You can go into the room and try to talk some sense into them if that's the case, but people don't really even do that. So it's, you're kept busy. And I think part of the reason is to keep everyone going without asking a lot of questions in a way. Not that what we're doing is anything shady because the vast majority of the UN is not doing anything shady, but there's pieces of it that are. There's pieces of it that are very political, absolutely. But the average project of UNICEF in whatever country 
You can't steal from it. There's way too many checks and balances. You could hire your friends for a consulting thing. I get, you know, there's stuff like that, right? Minor, petty, petty, foolish, nothing. But um, you're going to see the results. It's going to be externally audited, totally public, you know. So it's just a lot of projects, day-to-day stuff, working on stuff like more water, cleaning up the, ri- the river, whatever. It's, it's nothing exciting. But there's little pockets of it. Like, for example, when I was in, um, in Geneva, um, a, a very high director, the day after he retired, told me that at that, at that point, this was 2001 um, or two, 2002 maybe. Anyway, at that point, he said that one, agent, one UN agency, just the European division, had nine spies alone. So, you know... That's, uh, you know, not really shocking, <laughs> kind of an assumption, but of course, yeah. I, I, one of them was working with us. So <laughs> I, I thought he was, I didn't understand what he was there for, why he was, there were so many weird questions about this guy, but um, yeah. So they, you know, for example, before um, <clears throat> September 11th, they had a lot of, UN people going to Afghanistan, checking stuff out. And they were people in legitimate teams going there. But one of these guys who went there all the time, he was a spy. Well, I just kind of assume that it's a part of the game. But but if I hadn't been told that from that director, okay, and if I hadn't kind of happened to be there the first day this guy arrived and questioned him because I'm nosy, if, if those things hadn't lined up, I would have never, ever seen anything. I would have never seen one piece of evidence in 18 years to that. When you're talking about pockets of shady stuff, can you cite examples that, are, you know, that you can talk about publicly? Well, I'll, I think it is... I don't understand. I'm not going to say this is shady. I will ask a question. Mm -hmm. I would like to know from the offices of the United Nations, I'd like them to explain partnership with the World Economic Forum. I'd like them to explain why the margins are not even justified, um, why it's it's very, um, it doesn't really say much, but it could say a lot. There could be innuendos. That is a question I have. I would like to know why that agreement was made, which is such a huge agreement because it changed the entire character of the whole United Nations. And I'd like to know why that, if that agreement was made with the signatures of the member countries and where those documents are. And um, I'd I'd like a lot more information about that document because I don't understand that because the United Nations, as you probably know, has not always, but well, has always been a multinational intergovernmental organization, meaning that governments, democracies, usually, or social democracies, where people have, or a socialist or social welfare rather countries, where people have a say, where the population has a say in what happens, those kinds of countries are member countries. And, um, they, their, their part, uh, political representatives will bring the, the majority's wishes 
to the national head of government, which will then put it internationally to the group of intergovernment. Okay, so um, I would like to know why this World Economic Forum UN partnership is allowed to lead, not um, is allowed to implement, is allowed to plan with great detail and create many, many, many new institutions, which are called not-for-profit institutions. I'd like to know why they're doing all of these plans, which are affecting our life now, which will affect our li the lives of our progeny, and the, perhaps most likely the future of humanity itself. And they call this, it's an inclusive, they use the word inclusive all the time, and multi-stakeholder capitalism, okay? So, no one knows about this plan. No one, the people who know about this plan have not been invited to take part in this plan. Well, the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution have all been planned out. There's many documents existing now that show the plans. Well, right. So if the World Economic Forum, since the World Economic Forum is now in partnership with the United Nations and together they are working for the Sustainable Development Goals, known as the SDGs, okay, then, then what has happened, in my opinion, is that the, the power of the United Nations was only as strong as the member of members, member countries permitted. The UN never led anything. They don't lead things. They don't lead. They're not allowed to lead. They're allowed to coordinate, collaborate, cooperate, support, okay? But they cannot lead and say a country has to do this or that. And they don't have the money in their pockets to do that anyway, okay? They're not like banks. So, the for example, let's say, let's just use the country of um, uh, St. Lucia in the Caribbean. It's a small country, easy to work with, okay? So... Let's say one, um, one agency, uh, let's say it's UNICEF, um, <clears throat> UNICEF for St. Lucia. The uh, UNICEF will say to the government of St. Lucia, their focal points for child welfare and education and health and that, their you know, technical focal points, will say, okay, we have $10 million to spend over the next five years. What do you government want to do with it? And then the government will say this and this and this and this and this and this. And as long as those things don't break any laws or international laws or aren't in corruption or, you know, whatever legal guidelines and, you know, guidelines of proper and appropriate use of money and that kind of thing. And as long as they fit into the UN's basic framework of what development is, which they almost always do, then they will go ahead. But it's very much country led that way. Um, I wouldn't know anything about the Security Council. That would be completely different. But the agencies that work in topics like environment, health, education, um, cultural preservation, and so on, are all the same way. So until the UN signed this partnership with the World Economic Forum, they only, they, they were government-led, you know? And the money that the rich countries give to the UN, and they say, okay, that much is for St. Lucia. So let's say France and Canada and USA and England, donor countries, they put the money in, that's for St. Lucia, then the UN takes the money. Oh, and the UN is like a big liaison with the donor country. We're the interlocutor. So we you know, deal with uh, 
the country and then we do the project. We make sure the project's done well. We make sure the results are seen and lots of checks and balances. Then we present those results to the donors. We say, look, in St. Lucia, your money was spent properly. This is that, this is that, this is that, this is that. So nothing fishy goes on there. Not really. I mean, you have projects that aren't so successful. They're not well designed or, or things, but not usually. It's, it's not, that's not an issue. You know, sorry. But I then, guess. when they agree, when you're saying that when they signed the agreement with World Economic Forum, that that transparency went out of the window. Well, all of a sudden, they had this huge cash injection from the richest people and businesses in the world. So all of a sudden, they're really so they can now do what they want, kind but of. But you mean not just informally, and so you mean that with this agreement, the structure was put in place where say, Salesforce can say, you know what, St. Lucia, I want you to do this because I'm giving you the money. Did it go to that degree? No, no, no. Oh, no. Nothing like that yet. What it looks like has happened is that when this agreement was signed just between um, the United Nations and the World Economic Forum, they went into partnership. So before the UN it was very difficult to take corporate funds. They could. It was only about in 1990 where they even started to think of corporate funds because that's always like hand, you know, governments yeah. and aren't supposed to mix, right? Of course, there's always been bribes and lobbying and lots of money and, you know, going. It's always happened in a way, right, in a way. But before the governments wanted just to keep it. So it's government to government to government. They don't want it. They didn't want to mix business and business money in it at that time. And it was 1990 when the governmental money started to dry up. And when the needs were about 1990, when I said that, when the needs became very great and when the government tell the governmental donor money started to dry up, um, and there were lots of reasons for that. Um, then the United Nations started to look at corporate donorship. And then that was also the, be, the beginning of um, this whole idea of corporates, not really the beginning, but a more push towards corporate social responsibility within the business queue, the greening of the businesses and so right. on, which are good things, which are, are good things. I don't have a problem with that. And also... Unless you knew about this great reset plan, which is decades and decades old, if not older, right? Then, for example, in 2000, an older colleague of mine um, said to me, you know, I don't think this is good, this allowing this corporate donorship. He was like 55 at the time. And I thought, well, you know, what does Coca-Cola care? It's better because I thought like when you allow, let's say, England as a donor to Jamaica, then you sometimes they might want to try to push their agenda through you. That's always a possibility. Just I haven't seen it much, hardly ever, but still. And I thought, okay, what if Coca-Cola just, I'm just saying Coca-Cola as an example. Right. Of one, let's say they want to give some money to St. Lucia. And, and when I was um, in 2000, I was just thinking, oh, that's good because Coca-Cola doesn't have an agenda. What do, you know, they're not... <laughs> They're not in development, you know. They just want their PR and as and as advertisement. Okay. But now that I see they're really, nowadays, that is not the case. Nowadays, with the World Economic Forum, a lot of corporate money is working towards this great reset. 
and the fourth industrial revolution. There's a lot of private sector money in there, um, as well as very powerful um, individuals and families around the world. So now you have this partnership, very vague, just saying, basically saying they're going to work together on these sustainable development goals. Well, like, so to me, it looks like the, now the horse is off and there's, I don't understand how it even happened. I have no idea how this agreement was made, why there isn't more talk about it, how it got to be. But I'm thinking the language is so tricky because, for instance, when I read the whole UN document about Agenda 2030, and it is, if you don't know the context, then it's just a very bureaucratic, boring document that you don't even believe it's going to do anything. Because usually, you know, people get salaries for producing those huge documents that are detailed and boring and completely unimaginative. And you think, okay, so somebody got their salary, great, but nothing's going to happen because that's just how it usually works. And yet with the context, all that language that is otherwise useless can be put to work to do, well, whatever they want, really. And if they want something that is not very good, then that's what they're going to try to do with it. And it is fascinating how language can be deceptive. Mm-hmm. To that exact point, and um, I won't give the exact ref, um, example um, because I would have to check a couple of details first. And I don't like to speak about something unless I remember the detail. But um, basically, I came across that a report from the Secretary General general's office, a remark made by his office, um, they used the word sanction. And what I was looking for was perfect because, anyway, I'll just say that they use, I I can give more details about this when I go and refresh myself of the exact names of the documents and what I'm talking about here. But basically they use the word sanction. And I thought the word sanction, now that means two things. You know, it means two things, the word sanction. So the word sanction can mean we're sanctioning this country because we don't agree with them. So we're pushing them away and not having anything to do with them. But sanction can also mean approve. The exact opposite. So I saw an example of that where they use the word sanction to try to sound like they were putting something. But legally, they could say, well, no, we approve it. And when did you start doubting WHO? Well, I never had much to do with them before. I never worked with anyone from there, really. You know, it wasn't my field. So I never thought about them much. So really just, I mean, just when COVID started, I guess, is when I started to really look at them, you know. And I learned something, too, about them. Um, There are UN agencies which are called specialized agencies. They might have another name as well, but um, WHO is one of them. And those agencies do not report to the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations, also called ECOSOC, which is an oversight body that's very strict. It's very strict in terms of money, in terms of everything, the results. I never went to an ECOSOC meeting personally, but I did help my bosses prepare. They were under a lot of stress, very rigorous Mm -hmm. and demanding. 
but um, WHO is not. So WHO is governed by its own board. So they, 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 no, there's no oversight at all? It's governed by its own board. Well, I'd have to look into the exact, again, I like to be precise, the exact details surrounding that. So perhaps, now they coordinate and collaborate with many other bodies and they would be expected to work within their mandate and they would be expected to work within various professional and ethical standards within the United Nations, okay? But there, from what I can see, and again, I would like to have more information if I am incorrect, but from what I can see, they are, you know, they, they do not have the level of oversight from ECOSOC. But so, for instance, if at some point, say 10 years down the road, it becomes obvious that their guidance was murderous and that a lot of people actually suffered or passed away because of what they recommended or enforced or not enforced, like tried to, rec tried to make people do. So is then the legal means, as in lawsuits, is it the only way? So there's no oversight mechanism that can, you know, can they be punished within their own structure, within the end structure? Oh, Lord, I don't know. I don't know. Um, they would, you know, certain oversight, they would have to report to their donors. So the donors would have some oversight, okay? But if the donors are largely, you know, who, right. and, or, then who, this gets sketchy. That's what I'm saying. So, right. you know, the person overseeing is only able to oversee as far as his position and his boss's positions have not been corrupted, right? Well, if it is corrupt, which it seems like it is greatly, then essentially good luck. Their own board, it depends who's on their board. So the policing or oversight power of their board maybe changes. Let's say, for example, one of the board is the country of whatever, Germany, just to say that. Then... Maybe if Germany wants to step up the power, I mean, of their, if they don't like what WHO is doing, maybe they change their representative and then one of the board becomes Germany, but there's still 11 or whatever number others on the board. I don't know the exact number on their board. Okay, So the, you know, it's a very sort of elastic thing because today your director is X person and and he or she may choose to uphold this very rigorously while not worrying about that or make this a focus or trying to please this boss or that or whatever. And then a new director comes and everything really changes because, you know, there really is a lot of power with whoever is leading. So, and what is your message to people who do work in the government or in the end or even at the World Economic Forum? What is your human message as of somebody who did that job and who has come to realization that we do have responsibility for the world and for future generations? Well, I think just really to, to stop, to stop what they're doing, just stop maybe for a week, maybe two weeks, just stop and go into a field and feel the warm sunshine with your dog and feel that that sunshine is the same warmth on the dog's fur and then know that their friends are going to be 
cooking chili at home and to go back and enjoy a meal with the fire and the chili, maybe even a beer and say and have a sing song and say to themselves, isn't this enough? Wow. Because the poor world is not leading us into this. So if we think we're trying, doing all this to help them. And in terms of the, the non-excuse, you know, they've taken goals that were, I don't think the UN, I'm kind of jumping around here, but um, the UN has become more and more infiltrated by this um, great reset idea. When I started working there, it wasn't as apparent, things were very different. And over the years, it's just been hijacked really in a way, you know, hijacked in a way. So the money, the world of money, through the world of politics, with then with the world of politics, has gone into the UN and hijacked it really. I think it's sort of, I don't know too much about history, but when they speak of when the church and state were once one, and then the separation of the church and state, well, this is the, the people, democracy, governments, being manifested in the United Nations. And, you know, then to see that it has just sort of now been married to money, to the world of money, and therefore the world of politics. So that has, that's happened. Oh, thank you. Thank you again for your courage. And if there's anything else that you want to say, go ahead and say it. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to, again, I mean, this goes back to what you said very beautifully and eloquently in your, one of your latest articles, and that's the, the idea of unity, you know, um, no climate denier, climate activist, no black, white, no Democrat Republic, no atheist, religious, just that that can't work. And also too, that we have to stand up. We have to stop the tyrant, but one cannot fight for peace. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being a beautiful human being. You're very, very inspiring. Oh, thank you. And we all need each other. Like we all can do something that is our piece of the puzzle. And it is important. I think it is really important to feel like the power comes from a lot of people doing their best and that none of us can fight the tyrant on our own. It's impossible but we can be brave and together we're far more powerful. Right. I, I, um, I always think of, I always think of the phrase, be the drop that tips the bucket. So if you have a bucket and the bucket holds 30,000 drops of water and you're the first drop and then you're the 30,000th drop and then you're the 30,000 and first drop and that drop tips the bucket, but makes no less important the 30,000th drop or all those underneath right to the first drop. So I always just, even though you know you're going to be a drop, if that, drop anyway. <laughs> Fill the bucket, 
tip it. Thank you. Amen to that. Thank you, Mary. Thank you too.